This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Atlantic, the historic magazine that offers a unique editorial view on the arts, politics, and current events. Catch up on the important news happening in the world around you. The Atlantic, found only here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The Atlantic, and I'm your reader, Susan, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I will be reading from the... January-February issue 2024 of The Atlantic. Our first article under Culture and Critics is in the art area, and it's Rodin's rival. Camille Claudel, long eclipsed by her famous mentor and lover, claims a place as one of the greatest sculptors in 19th century France by Farrah Peterson. In 1892, the French sculptor Camille Claudel applied to France's Ministry of Fine Arts for a block of marble. As was customary, the ministry sent an inspector to decide whether her planned work was worth the state's support. Her plaster model showing two nude figures waltzing was a virtuoso performance, the official wrote. Not even Auguste Rodin, Claudel's mentor, could have studied with more artistic finesse and consciousness the quivering life of muscles and skin. But although the ministry commissioned equally sensual works from Rodin in that era, era, it refused to support one by a female artist. In Claudel's composition, the closeness of the sexual organs went too far. Claudel spent months on a version that veiled the female figure. The resulting bronze, the waltz, was a triumph an ethereal work of romance, air, and sweeping movement. The composer Claude Debussy, a friend of Claudel's, acquired a plaster version and kept it near him. The waltz became her most celebrated work, produced in many different iterations, several of which are gathered in a new exhibit of Claudel's work, which opened at the Art Institute of Chicago in October and will move on to the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles in April. But Claudel never did get the marble she had applied for. Claudel bent every effort to make a name for herself, undeterred by the restrictive mores of her time. Though she won acclaim at the height of her brief career, her reputation faded in the decades after her death. Despite renewed interest in Claudel's work in the 1980s, her tumultuous life story and Rodin's role in it tended to deflect attention from her art particularly in the United States. Her best pieces, H.W. Jansen and Anthony F. Jansen wrote in their canonical history of art, might pass for his. But Claudel's oeuvre, especially its sensitive and moving evocation of women's interior lives, is not so easily dismissed. The new show presses the argument that Claudel ranks among the greatest French sculptors of the 19th century. Gathering dozens of pieces in terracotta, plaster, bronze, and stone, the exhibit spurs reflection not just on Claudel's singular talent, but on the extraordinary determination that her successes required. When Rodin pressured her to become his mistress, she demanded he support her career. 
When she became pregnant during their relationship, she had an abortion, not a safe or easy undertaking. In the years after their partnership ended, Claudel created some of her most compelling work. Yet, Claudel remained dependent for patronage, for materials, and eventually for her freedom itself on the men in her life. Prompted by her erratic behavior, Claudel's family, led by her brother, Paul, committed her to an asylum at age 48. There she stayed, long after her doctors urged her release, until her death 30 years later in 1943. This was a penance, her conservative Catholic brother would write, for the abortion. She never sculpted again. The exhibition leaves us wondering what else she might have shown us had she been allowed to pursue her vision. Claudel's talent was already evident by the time she entered Rodin's studio around 1884. Right away, recalled Matthias Morhart, a critic who closely followed her career, Rodin became not a teacher, but rather a brother of the young artist who was later to become his loyal and intelligent young collaborator. Rodin consulted Claudel about everything, deliberating each decision with her and proceeding only after they were in agreement. Walking through the exhibit's rooms, one can easily see why. The show opens with some of Claudel's earliest work, pieces Rodin may well have seen on their first meeting in 1882 when she was a 17-year-old art student and he was 41, starting to enjoy commercial success. Here we encounter young Roman, Claudel's tender portrait of Paul, the brother who had become her jailer. Already showing her sense of aesthetic play, Claudel flattened her brother's brow and broadened the planes of his cheek to better imitate the Roman ideal, while maintaining the idiosyncratic details of his face. The slight twist to his bottom lip, his elongated earlobes, his abstracted gaze. To complete the classical illusion, she even painted the plaster version in the exhibit, a recent Art Institute acquisition, to mimic the patina of an ancient bronze found at sea, with algal blooms of green and yellow where it might have rested at the bottom of the Adriatic. Though young Roman and other works of the period show Claudel's potential, her rise as an artist was hardly a given. Early feminist ideas had begun to circulate in cafes, lecture halls, and even the popular press. But many in France regarded ambition like Claudel's with suspicion. To bureaucrats responsible for doling out ever-vital state support for sculpture, a woman in the male-dominated art was an interloper. The invitation to work in Rodin's studio then was not just a learning opportunity. It was a lifeline that offered Claudel access to the expensive materials and large-scale commissions she needed in order to establish herself as an artist. Her precarious position cannot have been far from Claudel's mind when, not long after she started working for him, Rodin began to pursue her relentlessly. They soon became lovers, but Claudel seems to have set certain terms. In a document that survives among his papers, Rodin agreed to promote Claudel's work among his influential friends, to pay for her to be professionally photographed, and to turn away his other students to avoid, he wrote, any risk of rival talents, though it's unlikely one would encounter anyone so naturally gifted. In return, she would let him visit her studio four times a month and live with him for certain parts of the year. They never married. 
Rodin would never make up his mind to sever ties with his other lover, Rose Burette, with whom he shared a son. But the sculptor's creative and romantic alliance held for about a decade. The exhibit's treatment of Claudel's years in Rodin's studio reveals at once the depth of their artistic collaboration and the emergence of Claudel's vision. Though her style is sometimes dismissed as an imitation of his, the show's curators, Emerson Boyer and Anne-Lise Damas, demonstrate convincingly that the borrowing and influence went in both directions. An eloquent bronze hand by Claudel evokes Rodin's well-known preoccupation with that subject. It may even seem derivative, until one considers that Claudel fashioned so many of the hands and feet of Rodin's sculptures that she complained those labors left her little time for her own work. Elsewhere, Claudel's terracotta figure, Young Girl with a Sheaf, is shown alongside Rodin's celebrated marble, Galatea. The close resemblance between the two works confirms Rodin's influence, but Claudel's girl is no copy. Her sculpture preceded his. At the same time, the artist's styles diverged in important ways, and strikingly so in their depiction of women. Compare, for example, their crouching female nudes, so similar in composition and yet so different in final effect. Rodin's crouching woman, paired in the exhibit with Claudel's later work of the same name, is locked in an unlikely bestial position. Her neck strains forward with her eyes closed and her sharply bent knees are spread, thrusting her genitals toward the viewer. Rodin has perhaps captured an idea, but he has not shown us a person. One influential critic nicknamed it the frog. Some art historians have made much of the fact that Claudel had Rodin's as an example when she made her own crouching woman. But a glance at Claudel's nude dispels any notion that it's purely derivative. Claudel's woman curls into herself. Her clasped hands cross her head, covering her face in a gesture of self-protection and self-effacement. The folds of fat in the belly, the arm resting on the knee, the hollow space between armpit and thigh— the realism of the rendering is startling, the pressure of the flesh on flesh palpable. It is impossible to convey the care that went into the sequence of these lines, the choice of these planes, the subtlety of these contours, Monhart wrote. The arms, the back, the stomach have a suppleness in which life shudders. Claudel's bronze of the same sculpture, made after she and Rodin parted company, distills its power even further. Claudel sheared off the head and arms in one knee, leaving the feet planted on the ground to support the woman's body, a choice that emphasized the agonized curve of her back with its perfectly articulated spine. The viewer may sympathize with the figure depicted in plaster, but she feels that she has been the figure portrayed in bronze. And one cannot help but think that this compelling final version drew on Claudel's own experiences of anguished helplessness within a woman's body. Unfortunately, the otherwise comprehensive exhibit doesn't include Clotha, another important example of how sharply Claudel's version diverged from Rodin's. Rodin had earlier used the same elderly female model for She Who Was Once the Helmet Maker's Beautiful Wife, a figure sitting demure and hunched, her head bowed under the viewer's gaze. Rodin's figure is an allegory of time, but also its victim. 
Claudel's Clotho is time's master. One of the three fates, Clotho spins the threads of men's lives. The wool, its texture like ancient gnarled vines, sits heavy on her head. She lifts the tangled masses with her arms as she steps forward, revealing an expression of calm self-possession. To have crafted Clotho's pose, Claudel would would have had to imagine the intimate darkness under those weighty skeins of yarn. It was this ability to put herself in her subject's place, particularly when she depicted women, that gave modern sculpture some of its most provocative early monuments. First exhibited alongside the sensual waltz at the 1893 Salon of the Société Nationale des Beaux-Arts, Clotho showcased Claudel's creative range. Debussy, who so loved the waltz, found Clotho unsettling. A critic described Clotho's breast drooping like dead eyelids, and her legs made for terrible, never-ending strides that mow down human lives. The sculpture shows that Claudel did not shy away from exploring the female grotesque, that she could find power in grotesquerie. Coming after decades of graceful nymphs, stately ladies, and shapely Grecian goddesses, Clotho is exhilarating because of its utter indifference to the male gaze. Claudel's critical success at the 1893 Salon marked the start of a new chapter in her life. Her place in Rodin's studio had connected her to a network of artists, journalists, and collectors, many of whom became her own enduring supporters helping her place her sculptures in museums and win commissions and patrons. But by 1892, Claudel had grown resentful of Rodin, and she took steps to end their relationship. She moved into her own studio, determined to prove her independent merit as an artist. Claudel's serious study of a young girl, the little lady, in French, La Petite Châtelaine, is the first masterpiece of this period. Begun in 1892 and Completed in marble in 1895, the bust portrays the taut, upward-looking gaze of a child asked to hold still for an important purpose. Some have suggested that the little lady is a kind of redemption piece, given the timing of its completion after her abortion. We cannot know whether Claudel believes she needed redemption. What she did need, however, and what this work provided, was an opportunity to distinguish herself from Rodin. Though Rodin would pose for photographs with a chisel in hand, he relied on assistance to translate his plaster visions into stone. Claudel could carve, and in successive versions of The Little Lady, she showed her virtuosity in marble, changing the hair in one and hollowing another so that light could illuminate the features from within. But The Little Lady is not just a technical marvel. Its respect for the reality of girlhood sets the piece apart from many portrayals of young girls in 19th century sculpture. There is no trace here of the pubescent figure with noticeable nipples or of the decorative soft cheek cherub. The same distinctive perspective shines through in the chatterboxes. Here we find something rare in European sculpture of this period a depiction of platonic female intimacy, not as an excuse to display a breast or a hip for the onlooker, but as women actually experience it. Featured in the exhibit in both white marble and green marble onyx, the Chatterboxes shows a group of three women listening with rapt attention to a story told by a fourth. 
The space between the women's bodies as they lean into one another recalls Claudel's emotive use of interior space in other works. The gap between thigh and arms in the plaster crouching woman. The dark area under the fates skeins in Clotho to create a sense of inner life. In an 1893 letter to her brother, sketching her initial idea for the composition, Claudel exclaimed, You see, it is no longer anything like Rodin. Age of Maturity, the most ambitious of her projects during this era, provides the visual centerpiece of the exhibit. It shows in one sweep her skills at portraying the human body, creating the the sensation of movement and conveying emotion through small gestures. The three-figure composition portrays a young woman pleading on her knees as a man turns away and walks into an older woman's embrace, an allegory of man leaving youth behind and entering old age. Scholars believe that Rodin, embarrassed by the composition's obvious reference to their relationship, may have used his influence to persuade officials to cut the funding promised to cast the work in bronze. It would be years before Claudel was able to secure private funding for its final casting. The grand and poignant sculpture was so much more than a breakup ballad, however. It finally established, one critic declared, that we can no longer call Mademoiselle Claudel a student of Rodin. She is a rival. Even as Claudel attracted acclaim, her talent confounded many of her contemporaries. She was, a prominent critic marveled, a revolt against nature, a woman genius. Others groped to describe her expressive force, sometimes ending in bafflement by calling it virile or male. Rather than giving Claudel her due, many continued to find it easier to attribute her strengths to Rodin's tutelage. Rodin himself seemed to have deeply mixed feelings about Claudel's emergence as a great sculptor in her own right. When women have bronze and marble and clay, the stuff of which creation is made, Rodin said of her in his old age, they find a sculptor, a mighty poor lover. Perhaps he harbored anxiety about her creativity, a part of her that he could never control. Rodin taught that we must unfreeze sculpture and that life is movement. Yet his portrait of Claudel, thought, on view in the exhibit, imprisons her from the chin down in a solid block of marble. Another, The Farewell, which Rodin modeled in 1892, shows Claudel's eyes wide and worried, her hands pressed against her lips as though withholding a confession, her features sinking as though drowning in a sea of stone. And although Rodin meant to honor Claudel by including a room devoted to her work in the Musée Rodin, one effect of that decision was to ensure that her artistic legacy would long be subsumed into his. Rodin's disturbing portraits proved prescient. By the early 1900s, Claudel's mental health had begun to falter. Her father, who had stood out as an unwavering supporter through her artistic struggles and successes, died in 1913. Just eight days later, her remaining family had her committed to the asylum. Even after her health improved, they rebuffed both her entreaties and her doctor's advice to release her, using a legal order of sequestration to deny her all contact with the outside world. Of the dream that was my life, she wrote, this is the nightmare. 
To her brother, this life sentence was punishment for the crime of killing a child, an immortal soul. Claudel took every opportunity to develop her skill and to experiment with color, scale, and texture while she remained free to pursue her art. But it is her emotional insight and range, not just the textures she borrowed from nature and her dramatic windswept angles, that truly set her apart. As talented as her male contemporaries, Claudel showed that she had something different to say, important truths to add to our understanding of the human condition. Her contributions, largely eclipsed in the years since her death, have rarely been accorded the respect they receive in this exhibit. The renewed attention is well-timed. Claudel's work confronts us with the power and vulnerability of the female body, and her life is a reminder of what is lost when women's choices are wrested from their control. Farrah Peterson, an essayist and a historian, is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. A substantial portion of the January-February issue of The Atlantic is individual articles, essays, on If Trump Wins. I will read from several of these essays now. Loyalist Lapdogs and Cronies by McKay Coppins. When Donald Trump first took office, he put a premium on what he called central casting hires, people with impressive resumes who matched his image of an ideal administration official. Yes, he brought along his share of Steve Bannon's and Michael Flynn's, but there was also James Mattis, the decorated four-star general who took over the Defense Department, and Gary Cohn, the Goldman Sachs chief operating officer who was appointed head of the National Economics Council, and Rex Tillerson, who left one of the world's most profitable international conglomerates to become Secretary of State. Trump seemed positively giddy that all of these important people were suddenly willing to work for him. And although his populist supporters lamented the presence of so many swamp creatures in his administration, establishment Washington expressed pleasant surprise at the picks. A consensus had formed that what the incoming administration needed most was adults in the room. To save the country from ruin, the thinking went, reasonable Republicans had a patriotic duty to work for Trump if asked. Many of them did. Don't expect it to happen again. The available supply of serious, qualified people willing to serve in a Trump administration has dwindled since 2017. After all, the so-called adults didn't fare so well in their respective rooms. Some quit in frustration or disgrace. Others were publicly fired by the president. Several have spent their post-Washington lives fielding congressional subpoenas and getting indicted. And after seeing one Trump term up close, vanishingly few of them are interested in a sequel. This past summer, NBC News reported that just four of Trump's 44 cabinet secretaries had endorsed his current bid. Even if mainstream Republicans did want to work for him again, Trump is unlikely to want them. He's made little secret of the fact that he felt burned by many in his first cabinet. This time around, according to people in Trump's orbit, he would prioritize obedience over credentials. 
I think there's going to be a very concerted, calculated effort to ensure that the people he puts in his next administration, they don't have to share his worldview exactly, but they have to implement it, Hogan Gidley, a former Trump White House spokesperson, told me. What would this look like in practice? Predicting presidential appointments nearly a year before the election is a fool's errand, especially with a candidate as mercurial as this one. And, whether for reasons of low public opinion or ongoing legal jeopardy, some of Trump's likely picks might struggle to get confirmed, expect a series of contentious hearings. But the names currently circulating in MAGA world offer a glimpse at the kind of people Trump could gravitate toward. One Trump world figure with a record of deference to the boss is Stephen Miller. As a speechwriter and policy advisor, Miller managed to endure while so many of his colleagues flamed out in part because he was satisfied with being a staffer instead of a star. He was also fully aligned with the president on his signature issue, immigration. Inside the White House, Miller championed some of the administration's most draconian measures, including the Muslim travel ban and the family separation policy. In a second Trump term, some expect Miller to get a job that will give him significant influence over immigration policy, perhaps head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or even Secretary of Homeland Security. Given Miller's villainous reputation in Democratic circles, however, he might have a hard time getting confirmed by the Senate. If that happens, something White House Chief of Staff might be a good consolation prize. For Secretary of State, one likely candidate is Richard Grinnell. Before Trump appointed him ambassador to Germany in 2018, Grinnell was best known as a right-wing foreign policy pundit and an inexhaustible Twitter troll. He brought his signature bellicosity to Berlin, hectoring journalists and government officials on Twitter and telling a Breitbart London reporter early in his tenure that he planned to use his position to empower other conservatives throughout Europe. He had to walk back the comment after some in Germany interpreted it as a call for far-right regime change. Grinnell's undiplomatic approach to democracy diplomacy exasperated German officials and thrilled Trump, who reportedly described him as an ambassador who gets it. Grinnell has spent recent years performing his loyalty as a Trump ally and, according to one source, privately building his case for the Secretary of State role. One job that Trump will be especially focused on getting right is Attorney General. He believes that both of the men who held this position during his term, Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr, were guilty of grievous betrayal. Since then, Trump has been charged with 91 felony counts across four separate criminal cases, evidence he claims of a historic political persecution. He has pleaded not guilty in all cases. Trump has pledged to use the Justice Department to visit revenge on his persecutors if he returns to the White House. 
The notion of the so-called independence of the Department of Justice needs to be consigned to the ash heap of history, says Paul Dans, who served in the Office of Personal Management under Trump and now leads an effort by the Heritage Foundation to recruit conservative appointees for the next Republican administration. To that end, Trump allies have floated a range of loyalists for attorney general, including Senators Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, and Josh Hawley, former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, and Jeffrey Clark, formerly one of Trump's assistant attorneys general, who was indicted in Georgia on charges of conspiring to overturn the 2020 election. The charges are still pending. Vivek Ramaswamy, the fast-talking entrepreneur running in the Republican presidential primary as of this writing, is also expected to get a top post in the administration. Ramaswamy has praised Trump on the campaign trail and positioned himself as the natural heir to the former president. Trump has responded to the flattery in kind publicly praising his opponent as a very, very, very intelligent person. Some have even speculated that Ramaswamy could be Trump's pick for vice president. One source close to Ramaswamy told me that a Trump advisor had recently asked him what job the candidate might want in a future administration. After thinking about it, the source suggested ambassador to the United Nations, reasoning that he's a good talker. The Trump advisor said he'd keep it in mind, though it's worth noting that Ramaswamy's lack of support for Ukraine and his suggestion that Russia be allowed to keep some of the territory it has seized could lead to confirmation trouble. Beyond the high-profile post, the Trump team may have more jobs to fill in 2025 than a typical administration does. Dan's and his colleagues at Heritage are laying the groundwork for a radical politicization of the federal civilian workforce. If they get their way, the next Republican president will sign an executive order eliminating civil service protections for up to 50,000 federal workers, effectively making the people in those roles political appointees. Rank-and-file budget wonks, lawyers, and administrators working in dozens of agencies would be reclassified as Schedule F employees, and the president would be able to fire them at will, with or without cause. These fired civil servants' former posts could be less empty or filled with Trump loyalists. To that end, Heritage has begun to put together a roster of thousands of pre-vetted potential recruits. What we're really talking about is a major renovation to government, Dan's told me. Trump actually signed an executive order along those lines in the final months of his presidency, but it was reversed by his successor. On the campaign trail, Trump has vowed to reinstate it with the goal of creating a more compliant federal workforce for himself. Either the deep state destroys America, he has declared, or we destroy the deep state. McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He is the author most recently of Romney, A Reckoning. Our next article is The Specter of Family Separation by Caitlin Dickerson. Almost as soon as Donald Trump took office in 2017, 
agents from Immigration and Customs Enforcement were dispatched across the country to round up as many undocumented foreigners as possible, and the travel ban put into limbo the livelihoods of thousands of people from majority Muslim countries who had won the hard-fought right to be here, refugees, tech entrepreneurs, and university professors among them. The administration drew up plans for erecting a border wall, as well as an approach to stripping away the due process rights of non-citizens so they could be expelled faster. These changes to American immigration policy took place in the amount of time that it would take the average new hire to figure out how to use the office printer. Within days of Trump's election, his key immigration advisor, Stephen Miller, was already gathering a group of loyal bureaucrats to start drafting executive orders. Civil servants who were veterans of the George W. Bush administration found the proposals to be so outlandishly impractical, if not also harmful to American interests and perhaps even illegal, that they assumed the ideas could never come to fruition. They were wrong. Over the next four years, lone children were loaded onto planes and sent back to the countries they had fled without so much as a notification to their families. Others were wrenched from their parents' arms as a way of sending a message to other families abroad about what awaited them if they, too, tried to enter the United States. If given another chance to realize his goals, Miller has essentially boasted in recent interviews that he would move even faster and more forcefully. And Trump, who's been campaigning on the promise to finish the job he started on immigration policy, would fairly assume, if he is reelected, that harsh restrictions in that arena are precisely what the American people want. Following the Eisenhower model, we will carry out the largest domestic deportation operation in American history, he declared during a speech in Iowa in September, referring to 1954's offensively titled Operation Wetback, under which hundreds of thousands of people with Mexican ancestry were deported, including some who were American citizens. Trump and other key figures of his time in office have refused to rule out trying to reinstate family separations. They have been explicit about their plans to send ICE agents back into the streets to make arrests, with help from the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the National Guard, and finish their work on the wall. They say that they will reimpose the pandemic-related expulsion policy known as Title 42, which all but shut off access to asylum, and that they will expand the use of military-style camps to house people who are caught in the enforcement dragnet. They have laid out plans and legal rationales for major policy changes that they didn't get around to the first time, such as ending birthright citizenship, a long-held goal of Trump's. They floated ideas such as screening would-be immigrants for Marxist views before granting them entry and using the Alien and Sedition Acts in service of deportations. Trump and his advisors have also made clear that they intend to invoke the Insurrection Act to allow them to deploy the U.S. military to the border and to use an extensive naval blockade between the United States and Latin America to fight the drug trade. That most drug smuggling occurs at legal ports of entry doesn't matter to Trump and his team. 
they seem to have reasonably concluded that immigration restrictions don't have to be effective to be celebrated by their base. The breakneck pace of work during Miller's White House tour was periodically hampered by worried bureaucrats attempting end runs around him or by his most powerful detractors, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, whispering reservations into the president's ears. But Trump's daughter and son-in-law have left politics altogether, and Miller used Trump's term to perfect strategy for disempowering anyone else who dared to challenge him. As for job applications to work in a second Trump administration, Miller told Axios that being in lockstep with him on immigration issues would be non-negotiable. Others need not apply. Those who choose to join Trump in the mission to slash immigration would do so knowing that they would face few consequences, if any, for how they go about it. Almost all of the administration officials who pushed aggressively for the most controversial policies of Trump's term continue to enjoy successful careers. The speed of Trump's work on immigration can obscure its impact in real time. This is why Lucas Gutentag, a law professor at Standard and Yale and a senior counselor on immigration issues in the Obama and Biden administration, created a database with his students to log and track the more than 1,000 immigration policy changes made during Trump's years in office. Most remain in place. This is worth dwelling on. Trump's time in office already represents a resurgence of old, disproven ideas about the inherent threat, physical, cultural, and economic, posed by immigrants. And if Trump does return to office, this moment may qualify less as a blip than an era, a period like previous ones which when such misconceptions prevailed, and laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act and eugenics-based national origins quotas ruled the day. Returning Trump to the presidency would reopen wounds that have barely healed in the communities. He has said he would target immediately. Recently, I stood outside a church in the Northeast that caters mostly to undocumented farm workers, with a Catholic sister who oversees the parish's programming. As we stood in the autumn light, I remarked on the picturesque scene around her place of worship and work. She replied by pointing in one direction, then another, then another, at the places where she said ICE agents used to hide out on Sunday mornings during the Trump administration, waiting to capture her congregants as they left Mass to go about their weekly errands at the laundromat and the grocery store. Beyond the emotional impact of Trump's return, the economy could also face a pummeling if the number of immigrant workers, legal and otherwise, were to drop. In a November 2022 speech, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, detailed the harm from COVID-related dips in immigration, which left the country short an estimated one million workers. America's rightward shift on immigration is part of a global story in which Western countries are, in general, turning against immigrants. But the world tends to look to the United States as a guide for what sorts of checks on immigration are socially permissible. A new Trump administration would provoke a pretty clear answer, just about any. And anything-goes approach to immigration enforcement may indeed be what the country is left with if Trump succeeds in the next general election. 
The first 100 days of the Trump administration will be pure bliss, Stephen Miller told Axios, followed by another four years of the most hard-hitting action conceivable. Caitlin Dickerson is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She is the recipient of the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on the Trump administration's immigration policies. The next article by Barton Gelman is Trump Will Get Away With It. If Donald Trump regains the presidency, he will once again become the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. There may be no American leader less suited to take care that the laws be faithfully executed as the Constitution directs the president. But that authority comes with the office, including command of the Justice Department and the FBI. We know what Trump would like to do with that power because he said so out loud. He is driven by self-interest and revenge, in that order. He wants to squelch the criminal charges now pending against him, and he wants to redeploy federal prosecutors against his enemies, beginning with President Joe Biden. The important question is how much of that agenda he could actually carry out in a second term. Trump tried and failed to cross many lines during his time in the White House. He proposed, for example, that the IRS conduct punitive audits of his political antagonist and that Border Patrol officers shoot migrants in the legs. Subordinates talked the former president out of many such schemes or passively resisted them by running out the clock. The whole second volume of special counsel Robert Mueller's report, which documented 10 occasions on which Trump tried to obstruct justice, can be read as a compilation of thwarted directives. The institutional resistance Trump faced has reinforced his determination to place loyalists in key jobs should he win re-election. One example is Jeffrey Clark, who tried to help Trump overturn the 2020 election. Trump sought to appoint Clark as acting attorney general in early January 2021, but backed off after a massive resignation threat at the DOJ. People who know him well suggest that he would not let that threat deter him a second time. Trump will also want to fire Christopher Wray, the FBI director, and replace him with someone more pliable. Only tradition, not binding law, prevents the president and his political appointees from issuing orders to the FBI about its investigations. The top jobs at the DOJ require Senate confirmation, and even a Republican Senate might not confirm an indicted conspirator to overturn an election like Clark for attorney general. Under the Vacancies Reform Act, which regulates temporary appointments, Trump can appoint any currently serving Senate-confirmed official from anywhere in the executive branch as acting attorney general. Of course, all of the officials serving at the beginning of his new term would be holdovers from the Biden administration. Trump's allies are searching for loyalists among the Republicans currently serving on several dozen independent boards and commissions, such as the Federal Trade Commission, that have party balancing requirements for their appointees. Alternately, Trump could choose a senior career official in the Justice Department who has served for at least 90 days in a position ranked GS-15 or higher on the federal pay scale, 
a cohort that includes, for example, senior trial attorneys, division counsels, and section chiefs. Is Anne Joseph O'Connell, a Stanford law professor and an expert on the Vacancies Reform Act, reminded me, this is how we got Matthew Whitaker, the former attorney general's chief of staff as acting attorney general. Whitaker was widely criticized as unqualified. Would some career officials somewhere among the department's 115,000 employees do Trump's bidding in exchange for an acting appointment? Trump's team is looking. Once Trump has installed loyalists in crucial post, his first priority, an urgent one for a man facing 91 felony charges in four jurisdictions, would be to save himself from conviction and imprisonment. Of the four indictments against him, two are federal. The Florida case, with charges of unlawful retention of classified documents and obstruction of justice, and the Washington case, which charges Trump with unlawful effort to overturn the 2020 election. Those will be the easiest for him to dispose of. To begin with, there is little to stop Trump from firing special counsel Jack Smith, who is overseeing both of the federal investigations. Justice Department regulations confer a measure of protection on a special counsel against arbitrary dismissal, but he may be removed for misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, or for other good cause. That last clause is a catch-all that Trump could readily invoke. The regulations state that a special counsel may be fired only by the personal action of the Attorney General. But that would not stop Trump either. In the unlikely event that his hand-picked Attorney General were reluctant, he could fire the Attorney General and keep on firing successors until he found one to do his bidding, as Richard Nixon did to get rid of Archibald Cox. Alternatively, Trump could claim, and probably prevail, if it came to a lawsuit, that the president is not bound by Justice Department's regulations and can fire the special counsel himself. Smith's departure would still leave Trump's federal criminal charges intact, but no law would prevent Trump from ordering that they be dropped. He could do so even with a trial in progress, right up to the moment before a jury returned a verdict. No legal expert I talked with expressed any doubt that he would get away with this. Dismissing the charges would require the trial judge's consent. But even if the judges were to object, Trump would almost certainly win on appeal. The Supreme Court is not likely to let a district judge decide whether or not the Justice Department has to prosecute a case. Trump will be able to avoid going to prison even if he has already been convicted of federal charges before he is sworn in. Here again, a trial judge is unlikely to order Trump imprisoned, even after sentencing, before he exhausts his appeals, and there's no plausible scenario in which that happens before Inauguration Day. At any time while Trump's appeals are pending, his Justice Department may notify the appellate court that the prosecution no longer wishes to support his conviction. This is known as a confession of error on the government's part. The effect, if the court grants the request, is to vacate a conviction. 
Under Attorney General Bill Barr, the Trump administration did something to similar effect in a false statements case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, moving to dismiss the charges after Flynn had pleaded guilty but before his sentencing. Trump later pardoned Flynn. According to the relevant rule of criminal procedure, dismissal during prosecution, including on appeal from a conviction, requires leave of the court. But it's highly unlikely that an appellate court would refuse to grant such a motion to dismiss. Trump might also invoke the pardon power on his own behalf. He has already asserted as far back as 2018 that I have the absolute right to pardon myself. No president has ever tried this, and whether he can is a contested question among legal scholars. Experts who agree with Trump say the Constitution frames the pardon power as total, but for one exception, implicitly blessing all other ones, all other uses. The exception is that the president may not pardon an impeachment. Those who disagree include the Justice Department itself, though its Office of Legal Counsel, which concluded in 1974 that a self-pardon would be invalid under the fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case. But the debate over self-pardons wouldn't matter much to Trump in practice. If he pardoned himself of all criminal charges, there would be no one withstanding to challenge the pardon in court other than perhaps the Justice Department, which would be under Trump's control. Unlike the federal charges, Trump's state criminal cases for alleged racketeering and election interference in Georgia and hush money payments to a porn star in New York would not fall under his authority as president. Even so, the presidency would very likely protect him for at least the duration of his second term. The Office of Legal Counsel, which makes authoritative interpretations of the law for the executive branch, has twice opined in 1973 and again in 2000 that the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would unconstitutionally undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. That, in conclusion, is binding for federal prosecutors, but state prosecutors are not obliged to follow it. No one knows what would happen if Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, or Alvin Bragg, the DA in New York, decided to press ahead with their cases against Trump should he regain the presidency. Like so many outlandish questions pertaining to Trump, this one has no judicial precedent because no sitting president has ever been charged with felony crimes. But legal scholars told me that Trump would have strong arguments, at least, to defer state criminal proceedings against him until he left the White House in 2029. By then, new prosecutors with new priorities may have replaced Willis and Bragg. Trump has named a long list of people as deserving of criminal charges or execution. Among them are Joe Biden, Mark Milley, James Comey, Andrew McCabe, John Brenham, James Clapper, and Arthur Engoron, the judge in his New York civil fraud case. If he returns to office, Trump may not even have to order their prosecutions himself. He will be surrounded by allies who know what he wants. 
One likely DOJ appointee is Mike Davis, a Republican who has substantial government credentials. He was a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch and chief counsel for nominations to Senator Charles Grassley when Grassley chaired the Judiciary Committee. If Davis were acting attorney general, he said on a right-wing YouTube show, he would rain hell on Washington. First, we're going to fire a lot of people in the executive branch, in the deep state. He would also indict Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and James Biden and every other scumball sleazeball Biden. And every January 6th defendant is going to get a pardon. Trump could not immediately point an outsider like Davis, attorney general, but he could make him a Justice Department section chief and then appoint him as acting attorney general after 90 days. Trump could also appoint or direct his attorney general to appoint any lawyer at any time as special counsel to the Justice Department with the authority to bring charges and prosecute a case. Trump might not be able to convict his political enemies of spurious charges, but he could immiserate them with years of investigations and require them to run up millions of dollars in legal fees. Likewise, if he managed to place sufficiently zealous allies in the Office of Legal Counsel, Trump could obtain legal authority for any number of otherwise lawless transgressions. Vice President Dick Cheney did that in the George W. Bush administration, inducing the OLC to issue opinions that authorized torture and warrantless domestic surveillance. Those opinions were later repudiated, but they guided policy for years. Trump's history suggests that he might seek comparable legal blessing for the use of lethal force at the southern border, deployment of federal troops against political demonstrators, federal seizures of state voting machines, or deferral of the next election in order to stay in power. He would be limited only by the willingness of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the career civil service to say no. It occurred to me as I interviewed government veterans and legal scholars that they might be blinkered by their own expertise when they try to anticipate what Trump would do. All of the abuses they foresee are based on the ostensibly lawful powers of the president, even if they amount to gross ruptures of legal norms and boundaries. What transgressions could he commit, that is, within the law? But Trump himself isn't thinking that way. On Truth Social in December 2022, he posted that writing a wrong of sufficient magnitude, in this case his fictitious claim of election fraud, allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. The Take Care Clause of the Constitution calls for the president to see that laws are carried out faithfully. But what if a court rules against Trump and he simply refuses to comply? It's not obvious who would or could enforce the ruling. Barton Gelman is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of two books, including Angler, the Cheney Vice Presidency. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Susan with The Atlantic. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio, audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.